Good evening, everyone. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Providencia. Um, our reading for this evening comes from John's Gospel. A couple of weeks ago, we were in the beginning of John's Gospel, uh, the first 18 verses. And here today, we turn to the end of John chapter 1. It's verses 43 to 51. It says, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I've, I've heard a couple of people say before that for those who have an aspiration to write a book, and we have a couple of people in the audience at least who have written books, um, that, that if you want to write a book, you should write the book that you want to read. Right? So don't just write something else that somebody else has already written about or whatever, but if you find a place, a little slice of something that you would like to know about, that you would like to read about, go write that book. That's a little bit of the motivation I have behind this sermon. I don't necessarily have any aspirations to write a book, at least not yet. Um, but tonight, this sermon is the sermon that I feel like I need to hear, particularly in light of the last couple of weeks. And I have a feeling, hopefully it's from God, that some of us in our community need to hear this sermon as well. Um, so I've called this sermon, uh, Embody a Curious Calling. A Curious Calling. Can we be curious? I recently read Chuck DeGroat's new book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. And in that book, Chuck says that one of the ways that we as individuals and as church communities can resist the narcissistic tendencies within ourselves is by maintaining a relentless curiosity. A relentless curiosity. It's a great turn of phrase. The problem is, I already know what people are like. There's that lazy millennial with his head stuck in his phone. There's that old boomer waxing lyrical about the good old days. There's that person from Orlando, right? There's that person from New York. There's that person who lives on the island. 
There's that person who's Dominican, Colombian, Haitian, white. There's that person who's a Republican, that person who's a Democrat. That's all I need to know. I can pretty much peg the rest of who you are if I've got one of those facts about you. What do I need curiosity for? There's that person who participated in the storming of the Capitol building a week and a half ago. What more do I need to know about that person? There's that person who murdered two youth ministers. What more do I need to know about that person? To be clear, I'm not excusing insurrection or murder. What I am saying is that we too often let one thing about someone define everything about them. And every time we do that, we dehumanize. What I saw on my CNN live stream last week at the Capitol seemed to me to be a bunch of rednecks, if I'm being honest. I assumed that they'd driven or flown, probably without masks, into Washington, D.C. from rural areas where they only live around white people and they spend all their time on conspiracy websites. These are my assumptions when I see the images that I saw on my laptop. The problem is, in a weird way that I don't usually like to admit, those are my people. I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. The rough-looking redneck from the country describes some of my family and most of my friends from childhood. I was appalled as I followed the coverage of the Capitol attacks to see a giant cross being lifted up, hoisted onto the lawn of the Capitol just opposite a hangman's gallows. I was appalled to see that the rioters had gathered under a banner of Jericho March, that they were waving signs that said Jesus saves, that they were waving Christian flags alongside Confederate flags. The juxtaposition of these American symbols and violence and government buildings and Christian symbols surprised me, even if I shouldn't have been surprised. But the juxtaposition of American symbols and violence is not foreign to our brothers and sisters around the world whose countries have been bombed, invaded, or overthrown by American forces. The juxtaposition of American symbols and the attack of government buildings is not unfamiliar to our Native American brothers and sisters whose national identity was ransacked and leveled in the name of American Manifest Destiny. The juxtaposition of Christian symbols and violence is not surprising to our black brothers and sisters whose ancestors were terrorized by burning crosses and lynched on church lawns. But I was surprised. I was appalled. But then, in invoking Christian symbols, in claiming a Christian cause, in taking on the name of Christ, in some twisted and infuriating way, those are my people. Those are our people. 
Now, I know the gut reaction that some of you might be experiencing right now. You will say, those people don't represent me. And you might be somewhat right. That wasn't Christianity on display, maybe. Even that wasn't America. The trouble is, that is us. And as Christians who follow a liturgical tradition the way we do, every week we come together and we make space to confess and say together, that is us. So I'll ask again, can we be curious? Without excusing and without condemning, can we be curious? And what would it take to be curious? I think it begins and ends with desire, which we might also call love, which is a being drawn towards something, an attraction that is compelling. And between the beginning and ending of desire, there is openness and honesty and trust. This is what it might take to be curious And we see it all on display in this story of the calling of Philip and Nathaniel. So I've named it a curious calling. The story starts out with desire, but we might miss it if we're not paying attention, if we're not feeling the story as much as we're reading the story. As we reorient ourselves in the beginning of John's gospel, let's remember that Jesus is the light who has come into the world and the darkness will not overcome him. And John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, does exactly what I challenged us to do two weeks ago when we were talking about the beginning of John. John the Baptist connects himself with the people in their darkness. He sees them in it. He sees it for what it is, but he's willing to call them to repent, and then he points them to Jesus. He even does it explicitly. In John 1:36, just before the passage I read earlier, John the Baptist sees Jesus passing by, and he tells his disciples, look, the Lamb of God. And then John's disciples stop following him and start following Jesus. But then this curious thing happens. Jesus, after they start following him, wheels around on them and asks them a question. What do you want? What is it that you seek? What is it that you desire? Not what do you think or what do you believe? What do you want? Philosopher and theologian James K.A. Smith calls this the foundational question of discipleship. What do you want? And this essence of desire is buried beneath even Jesus' own call to his disciples that we read about in all four Gospels. The call to the disciples is, follow me. Jesus extends this call to Philip in verse 43. Follow me. Come after me. Be drawn to me. Be attracted to me. Be compelled by me. 
As Jamie Smith goes on to put it, you are what you love, and you'll become what you love. So love Jesus. Desire Jesus. Want Jesus. And Philip responds to this call with openness. Someone has embodied a desire for me. How will I respond? I don't normally respond with openness. I normally respond with something like, I'm doing all right, you know, just getting on day by day, going about my business. It's a closed response, but it's the one I normally give. Philip is curious and he's open. And we can see it in the way that he seeks out Nathaniel. His first instinct is to go and find someone else to draw in. There's that desire again. He says to Nathaniel, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know how much time passes between verse 43 when Jesus says, follow me, and verse 45 when Philip makes this statement to Nathaniel about Jesus, but it's not much. Philip is open enough and curious enough to be drawn in and make this kind of sweeping declaration about who Jesus is. But Nathaniel's not convinced. His response is, Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? But even in his skeptical response, Nathaniel embodies another aspect of curiosity. Nathaniel embodies honesty. Nathaniel might not be completely open, but he is honest. And I can empathize with that. See, Nazareth is a nowhere. Nazareth is a, a flyover zone. Important people don't come from Nazareth, never mind the Messiah, the one Moses wrote about, the one the prophets wrote about. And Nathaniel isn't pulling any punches. He wears his skepticism and honesty right on his sleeve. He tells it like it is. And amazingly, surprisingly, his honesty is validated by Jesus. When Philip and Nathanael approach, Jesus says to Nathanael, Here, truly, is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus not only saw Nathanael under the fig tree before Philip even came to him, he also knows of Nathanael's skepticism about his own hometown. And yet Jesus validates his honesty. But I tend to think that Jesus would not have validated Nathaniel's honesty without the accompanying trust that curiosity requires. The embodying of curiosity in this calling requires desire, openness, honesty, and trust. Without openness, trust, and desire, honesty is at best rude and at worst abusive. We all want to value honesty. We claim that we value honesty. But one of the reasons that we get involved in these disastrous conversations, social media or otherwise, in our public discourse, 
is because we don't value openness, trust, and desire. And so we end up beating each other over the heads with the blunt instruments of our words. It gets couched in terms of politically correct or telling it like it is. And just like everything else in our culture these days, you either fall on one side or the other. Heaven forbid you could do both or bounce between the two or have any nuance at all. Here in John chapter 1, Nathaniel seems to simply tell it like it is. But he doesn't use his honesty as a weapon to ward off anything that might change his mind. His honesty is accompanied by a little bit of openness, a little bit of desire, and a lot of trust. First, we can see the trust that Nathaniel has in Philip. Philip's openness toward Jesus' initial call is then extended to his friend Nathaniel. And when Nathaniel quips, can anything good come from Nazareth, Philip doesn't shut down and just say, well, fine then, I'll go and find someone else to share the good news with. Philip stays open. Come and see, he gently responds to his friend. We can get nearly all the fullness of curiosity in those three little words. Come and see. And Nathaniel trusts Philip enough to go. For whatever he thinks about Nazareth, it doesn't weigh more in Nathaniel's mind than his relationship with Philip. If Philip says, come and see, that's good enough for Nathaniel. Relationship over prejudice. We could go a long way if that might be our starting point. And then second, we see the trust that Nathaniel ultimately puts in Jesus himself. Nathaniel has demonstrated a curiosity that is rewarded by Jesus' acclamation. He's been open enough to hear Jesus, and then he believes. It's the verb for trust. It's the verb for faith. And don't miss that Nathaniel trusts when Jesus proves that he sees him. There is a curiosity in being willing to look and not look away. In being willing to see and be seen. Desire, openness, honesty, trust. And then we return to desire once more. At the very end of the passage, Jesus adds these words. Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And there are two interesting pieces here to tie into this theme of desire. First, the pronouns in this sentence change from singular to plural. We completely miss it in English, unfortunately. We don't have different pluralities of pronouns but it's there in the Greek. The yous, in very truly I tell you, you will see, those yous are plural. Jesus has turned from addressing just Nathaniel to addressing all of the disciples who have been drawn in together. And then secondly, Jesus directly alludes to 
the story in Genesis chapter 28 that we, some of us, will know as the Jacob's Ladder story. Jacob falls asleep and he receives a vision of a ladder or sometimes it's translated stairway into heaven. And the angels of God are ascending and descending on this ladder. And that vision is part of the renewal and the repurposing of Jacob's whole life. He receives a reiteration of the covenant from God, the same covenant that God made with Abraham and with Isaac. God renews with Jacob. And his journey as Israel, who he will become, the father of 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel, begins here in this vision. And now in John 1, Jesus has placed himself at the center of that vision. He himself is the stairway, the path that reaches from earth to heaven and back again. But Jesus' reinterpretation of Jacob's vision doesn't just leave Israel by the wayside. For Jesus, he's just identified Nathanael as a true Israelite. And so Jesus' reinterpretation is more about a reconstitution of God's family, where Israel will be drawn in to him, where the nations will be drawn in to him, where all humankind will be drawn in to Jesus. And Jesus will reiterate this idea and draw a direct connection to his crucifixion later on in John's gospel. Chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Drawn in to Jesus. There's our connection to desire again. And when Paul says that he resolves to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that's not simply to have some knowledge of some facts or even just some belief in our minds. It's to be drawn into, compelled by, desired by Jesus. So I think the question, can we be curious? finally comes down to our answer to another question. What do we desire? Will we desire God or will we desire power? Will we desire God enough to let God shape us into something else? Will we desire God enough to let God build in us a desire for one another? Will we trust that God desires us? Will we be honest about our fears? Will we be honest with ourselves? Will we be honest that we fear the other and the unknown? Will we be open enough to share our fears with God? Open enough to share our fears with each other? Open enough to be drawn together in the curious call toward the one who is lifted up? So let's return to that first question Jesus asks to John the Baptist's disciples. What do you want? What do you desire? Or rather, who do you desire? Because Jesus doesn't call Philip and Nathaniel to a what, it's a who. 
Desire me, says Jesus. Desire the Son of Man. Desire everyone that comes with me. Desire each other in being drawn toward me. Desire the nations. Desire your enemies. Even if your enemy wears a red MAGA hat and breaks down the doors of the Capitol. Even if your enemy wears the label Democratic Socialist and tries to tear down the very systems you benefit from. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And if you're looking for a way to spend the day, I'd encourage you to go read or reread Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Because those white moderates that Dr. King is writing to, those are my people. Those are our people. That's me. But in one of Dr. King's earlier sermons from 1957, he has this really amazing section where he envisions, even predicts, a world in which the tables might be turned between black people and white people. He imagines a time when black folks would have the opportunity to fully and completely defeat those enemies that have marginalized them, oppressed them, left them poor, thrown them in prison, even lynched them. The day will come to defeat them, says Dr. King. And then he says this, when the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is the time you must not do it. That is the meaning of love, says Dr. King. The more I've seen and heard the coverage of what happened in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, the more frustrated and sad I've gotten. I mourn for the state of our politics. I mourn for the state of our discourse. I mourn for the state of our church. I start to get angry, and that quickly leads to shutting down and being content to hold on to hate. Like a blanket from childhood. It's soft and worn from overuse. What if instead I tried curiosity? What if instead I had Philip's openness to say to my enemy, come and see? What if I was open enough to take my enemy's hand and say, come and see love? Come and see desire. Come and see grace and forgiveness. Put down your sign and your flag and your gun. Stop shouting for a moment and come and see weakness. Come and see service. Come and see God in the flesh. What if I had Nathaniel's honesty to say, I'm not sure I believe that's possible. And what if I trusted my community anyway? the people who will be willing to say to me, come and see. What if in the absence of everything else, I still desire Jesus? 
can't finish any better than to quote theologian Willie Jennings. So I'm going to close by reading this quote and give us a moment to reflect on it. Only holy desire that forms in us for one another can break our chains and guide us to a place where we meet each other in ways that announce eternity.